My name's James Beatty. And I'm Sean Carroll. And welcome to the Rebuild Health and Fitness Podcast, where we help you build your health and fitness. Yeah. It's going to be fun, Rach. It's going to be fun. All right. And welcome back to the Rebuild Health and Fitness Podcast. And today we have on sports psychologist, Rachel Jones. So Rachel has a background in sport and exercise science. She's holds roles in strength and conditioning, athlete warfare, tactical training and sport rehabilitation, assessment and management. She has experience working with elite athletes from Australian teams and organizations, including things like Super Rugby, NRL, the Wallabies, Queensland Jockeys Association, Racing Queensland, Sporting Wheelies, Professional Golfers Association of Australia, Australian Institute of Sport and Queensland Academy. Academy of Sport and more. Whoa. That's a that's a it's a bit going on. As a resume, I'll tell you what. <laughs> no, I've, I've had lots of cool opportunities, and um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. But I also like a bit of variety, so that's why I end up working with so many different athletes from so many different walks of life. But it's it's all been good fun. Yeah, I think that's the exciting bit. Even just speaking to you just off air before we obviously the sports psychology part of it was interesting to us but then you obviously mm. talked about just how you help high performance in high performers in your private clinic and people like your tactical welfare training or people that are just trying to be elite in whatever they do which i think is just a phenomenal mindset to sort of dig into a little bit so rachel firstly how are you doing yeah good good it's a question as a psychologist you don't get asked very often so it always <laughs> catches me off guard but um i mean i'm i'm sitting with, with a pretty good Great view here by the lake and just, you know, living on the Gold Coast, so living it up, it's a good way to be. Oh, how good. How how um how long have you been working as a sports psychologist and what sort of sort of drove you to that field? Yeah, about 10 years now and um, I think, you know, that idea of helping people be their best was the thing that really stood out for me. Like I, I still remember when I was 16, which was a little while ago now, but, doing a career inventory test and circling a question that said help athletes to reach their full potential. And I didn't know at the time that sports psychology would be the way to do that. Um, but yeah, always interested in the person behind the performer, not just mm. the sports person, but understanding the whole person. And, you know, sometimes you, you see people can have extraordinary success on the field um, or in, in whatever sport it is or whatever area of performance it is, but off the field things aren't so great. Or there's something that that holds them back from achieving their potential and I guess sort of seeing different people's stories and thinking about what, what might have been and um, what, what could happen just made me want to be part of that um, and really help people kind of reduce some of that suffering and, and get the best out of themselves. Yeah, wow. That's Fantastic answer. <laughs> I think that was really interesting what you said there just about that. What did it say again on the sheet? Helping athletes reach their... Reach their potential, yeah. It's a pretty specific and probably on point thing with sports psychology. Because yeah. even like I study sports science and I believe now the new lot of research that'll come out to sports science is like sports psychology. That is the next big step, I think, in, in sports performance. Um, so obviously it is a f still a fairly new in, uh, industry, especially in the professional game. You know, you're talking in the 90s when sport became professional, a lot of sports, it was never around. Probably even still early 2000s was never too prominent, but now it is becoming a lot more popular. Um, just being involved in some of these teams, have you had sort of much pushback originally, like coming in and trying to sort of delve deeper into their sort of mindset? 
Yeah, it definitely varies sport to sport. Um, you know, I still have conversations these days about what I actually do as a psychologist and, and people sort of look at you and go, oh, no, are you, are you reading my mind? Or, <laughs> you know, can, can you tell what I'm thinking right now? And, you know, we don't want to talk to you because that means things are too serious. Um, so that that gets frustrating sometimes. And every team that you start working with, you do have to have those conversations about how you actually work and what you actually do as opposed to something like a, a physio who or an SMC coach where there's like a, a set role description and, you know, it's really clear what that looks like. Um, so my experience, I'm working with a couple of teams at the moment and my experience with each team is slightly different, um, partly because of resources but also partly because of their understanding and how um, sports psychology is built into the program. Program. Um, yeah, I think as psychologists, sometimes we get a bit of a bad rap and some of the best feedback that I've had in some sports is that, you know, no offence, but you're a normal person. And yeah. I'm like, well, I've, I've never been so excited to be called normal. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, that that's part of it. You know, sometimes we've got to relax a little bit as psychologists, but still keeping those appropriate boundaries. And I think that's another challenge sometimes when we're working with teams, because a lot of what we do is confidential, which is for a purpose, because um, that just makes it a bit easier for people to access us and um, have those conversations. But then it's very difficult to build trust with coaches we might be working with or physios we might be working with or other, um, you know, sports medicine providers and even athletes as well because it's like, well, is this information going to get shared? What information is going to get shared? We're giving you a lot of information but you're not giving us a lot back. So balancing all of those things can be quite challenging plus the stigma around you know talking to a psychologist and what that yeah. might actually entail straight away um, you got sort of a negative connotation hasn't it if you think in the broader picture yeah yeah absolutely yeah and how do, how do you find like when you know you may an athlete may approach you who's a, who's a little bit hesitant about working with a psychologist or a sports psychologist how do you develop that trust and are there any sort of common themes or techniques that you've been able to apply to not only athletes but your your high performers in the in your private practice as well yeah i i think normalizing you know that it's just a normal part of your training so in the same way that you know people are investing so much in training their bodies or um you know doing their snc work doing their technical work their tactical work you don't want your brain to be the thing that gets in the way um, and and the same with you know people in the medical profession or defense forces or business or other areas that we work with as well um, you know it's that idea that uh, you, you don't want your mind to be getting in the way because you could study all your life and be perfectly exam uh, prepared for the exam but then on the day choke under the pressure because you can't get your words out because you're so anxious that your mind is just a mess of, of thoughts going in a million different directions. Um, and so being able to just have some skills and techniques that help with that makes makes a world of difference and can be the difference between having to go through that registrar program for another year um, or being able to to go up to that, that next level and get that promotion um, immediately. So I think that the training um parallel works really nicely um but also skills and strategies so we don't 
So, so talking therapy is really important and talking things through and figuring out what's going on, obviously, depending on what um, someone comes in with and what they want to work through. But we actually need skills and strategies to move past that as well. Um, and I think that's something that we really emphasize is, hey, let's try these couple of things. Do it as an experiment. See if it works. Um, and then it becomes like a bit of a coaching experience. It's like, okay, what worked and what didn't? And so then we progress um, and we go, okay, well, let's adjust in this way um, and, and find what does work and what's effective. And, you know, when people find something that's effective, they come back because they yeah. see that it works. Out of, interest. Right. Out of interest, how long do you keep going with something? So obviously some things like say for example meditation someone's not going to just meditate for the first time and be great at it they're going to have to practice so you know they come back to you and they're like no Rachel it just didn't work I hated it would you just say to them then okay let's reassess or would you say hey just just keep going with it a little bit yeah it really depends what it is and what what we're trying to solve so um, if you use meditation for an example that takes a bit of time um, to, to actually do it for, for a few different reasons. It might be that you can't pay attention for 10 minutes at a time because you're so used to multitasking and your brain kind of switching from one thing to another to another or, you know, we're, we're terrible at having our like five different screens open and we're trying to hold a conversation at the same time and our, our brain kind of gets used to that. So when we get rid of all of that stimulation and we go, okay, just sit put and don't think about anything else except the recording that you're listening to for 10 minutes, your brain naturally wants to go in a million directions. So if it's something like that, then it needs a bit of time to actually practice to build up to the 10 minutes. So we'd identify what what the issue actually is. But but the other thing is, uh, you know, different types of, of meditation or mindfulness work differently for different people. So some people are really great at, at breath work and, and doing work around their breathing. For some people, that actually makes them incredibly anxious or it's just really not something that makes them feel comfortable. That's okay. There's individual differences with that. But something like mindfulness, there's thousands of different ways that you can actually do it for different purposes. So it's about finding the thing that fits. If someone comes to me and goes, oh, it, it doesn't actually work for me, and I go, well, how many times have you tried it? It's like, oh, well, it doesn't really work. Like, okay, so you haven't tried it. Mm. All right, what's getting in the way? Then we talk through the barriers around that um, and go, okay, let's find a way to make it work. Um, Experiment with it first. We'd even do some practice in session if we needed to. Um, And then once we figured out whether that works or doesn't, move forward from there. Yeah, that's brilliant. I think I'm so glad you... Uh, touching up back on a little bit earlier what you said around like as a from an athlete standpoint I remember James Haskell speaking about this he's quite a famous uh, rugby player for England he he speaks so highly of his sports psychologists and he wishes that he found them earlier in his career because he was someone like many athletes who was so devoted to their training nutrition trying to do all the little things right but he would sort of just crumble under crumble under pressure he he, he couldn't quite or he didn't handle feedback quite well and when he started speaking to a sports psychologist he didn't realize how much that could um benefit him as much as it did and i guess just moving on to the next question is do you do you see any of those sort of common themes among like your professional level athletes having worked in such a variety of sports that sort of carry over to 
um, our general population, like how people deal with pressure or don't deal with pressure, how they deal with anxiety around certain tasks? Yeah, yeah. There's there's heaps of strategies that we talk about that just have application into all different areas of life and and sometimes it's the um, the athletes who, who have played and have figured out or sometimes they haven't figured out they can actually transfer the skills um, that they learn during their playing career um, and we might have been talking about it specifically for performing under pressure when they're you know, at um, Metricon Stadium instead of in front of thousands of people. Um, but it's actually the same thing that they can use heading into a job interview um, or the, the same strategy they can use when they have to have a different difficult conversation. Um, so there there is a lot of a lot of crossover there. And um, even when I do some work in, in youth development as well, um, it doesn't actually matter. Sometimes parents say, well, you know, it, what age is too young to bring my kid to a sports like? But the cool thing is all of the strategies that we talk about that they can practice um, in in their sport, they can actually use in everyday life. And, in fact, we talk about how, you know, the more that they practice the strategies at school, the easier it's going to be to use in, in their sport as well. Um, so there is a really nice crossover there. I suppose you'll get a lot of people that just want an answer. They just want this simple cut answer, like, what do you need me to do? But a qualification like yours, I don't know if you mind explaining it, is an extremely long and difficult um, yeah, qualification to get. It's not just your three-year degree. There's a lot that goes on after that. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think the minimum at the moment is around – six years. Mm. Um, I did a little bit longer because I did exercise science as well because I wanted both sort of sides of, of sport to to kind of get that experience as well. Um, but then you have to do more training. So so after that that six years, you, you come out with um, uh, as a registered psychologist, but then you've got to do an extra yeah. two years of training to become a sports psychologist and to put sport in front yeah. of your name as well. So yeah. So- yeah. This is incredible. You know, you talk eight eight years and then you'll get a lot of people, like I was saying, sorry, just to say, you know, what's the answer? It's like, well, <laughs> there isn't, there can't be just one answer, right? If it was that simple, that would be a, a wonderful thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that that's come back to bite me a few times in my career because I won't just sort of give a, a straight answer, um, like, you know, and, and sometimes with teams that's not what they want to hear because they want like a yeah. formula of a 10-step program that you run every time. But A, I would get bored and and B, it wouldn't actually be targeted towards the people that you're working with, so it wouldn't necessarily be relevant. Um, so it does have to be specific to what's in front of you. But that's the benefit of what we do too right like the benefit of having a great training program or similar to a great training program or a great physio or um, injury rehab or or whatever it is it's tailored to the individual and specific to what they're dealing with and do you find it's more the um like the organization itself that seeks you out or is it the the coach of the team because you know been around the game for a while there's a very different sort of like mindset around things when dealing with this sort of old school coach who just wants that pure grunt work compared to the new school coach who's like trying to look through sort of every avenue they can. 
Yeah, it, it really varies. Um, so I've had some situations where I have been sought out by the coach or um, uh, often the coach has to has to sign off it at uh, off on it at some point. Um, so sometimes it's the high performance manager, sometimes it's the organisation. Um, I do some work with QAS and so um, they'll often, you know, put us forward for a particular sport and then the sport have to kind of decide what to do. Um, yeah, so it's usually a mixture mixture of different ways that happens are you finding it easier with the youth coming through rather than adults uh i think i think it varies sport to sport um so yeah there there are definitely some sports that sports psychology is more established in um and so it's more accepted uh but then there are others where it is sort of tough and and the youth coming through are a bit more accepting because it, they've sort of started a lot younger. They've had access to these sorts of resources, so it's a bit more normal as opposed to, um, you know, being kind of a new introduced thing. But once you've got a couple of peer, people who have had a good mm. experience and, you know, the coach is a really big advocate, um, one, once they're sort of on board, it just makes it a lot easier. Yeah. One of the um, one of the biggest I get I get this happens for a, a lot of athletes is the self doubt that comes with um, coming back from injuries. So I remember when when coming back from one of my my knee injuries or my hip surgery, there's that lack of trust within your body to be able to perform, and it always felt like when you were performing a task, there was a million different things that you were trying to go through. You weren't actually focusing on your job. You'd sort of like. I remember I'd run in, run into contact, but as soon as I get hit, I'd shift all my weight off my left foot and just try to keep it on my my right leg, so my left one wouldn't wouldn't get hurt. Um, how how do you sort of? I know this happens with many people. I'm sure there's many answers, but is there any sort of advice you could give to anyone listening who's perhaps going through something similar? Because it is obviously quite quite common. Yeah, I think I think the word trust that you use there is is huge like um it's it's great because injury rehab from a physical sense is is built in a mm. in a way that you have to pass this stage to get to the next stage and to get to the next stage so you have that that kind of inbuilt as well but you've got to be a bit intentional about building that trust as you go so in your example there where you might favor your right leg instead of your left being really intentional at each step of of rehab to make sure there is that that evenness on on both sides and that you know you try something on your left and then you, you try it on your right as well so you're kind of building that that sense of confidence um, and always doing things in a controlled space before you start doing them in a in an uncontrollable space um, so like something like rugby where there's lots of change of direction and you can't always predict where you're going to get contacted from having that really controlled contact first or you know doing some really controlled agility first really helps Um, but also that that reflection process is really important from a, a mental point of view so being able to reflect back and go hang on a second what did my body do this week that I couldn't do last week and so then you're encouraging yourself and and you're measuring that progress and you're starting to see hang on a second I am actually improving and you know both of my legs are really strong and my knee couldn't do this 
like uh, two weeks ago, but now it, it can. Um, so you start to build that confidence up just by paying attention to it as well is, is really, really important. But also measuring your progress to where you were a week or two ago, not to where you were before you got injured because yeah. that becomes really discouraging really quickly. And have you ever had any um, or had a play around with like creating alter egos for athletes? I know um, Israel Adesanya, when he, he was speaking about his sort of mental performance coach, that, you know, Israel Adesanya, the UFC fighter, he, he, when you look at him, he's a happy, go lucky, loves to dance, all this stuff. But when he enters the octagon or he's walking down, he becomes Stylebender. And Stylebender is someone who, in his reality, is someone who can't lose, can't get knocked out, is, you know, ferocious fighter. Um, and that, and he, rather than trying to be Israel Adesanya all the time, he switches between the two. And I've seen it with, like, at, at boxing this morning, one of the girls had a fight on the weekend and her I was talking to her coach and he was saying she was an absolute mess, like, again, before the fight. So it's obviously happened before. She was sitting there. She's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to fight. If I lose, I'm going to top myself. But then goes out there and, you know, she's one of the best boxers in Australia. She went out there and, and dominated so obviously, whether she realizes or not, she's got that switch that she's able to sort of flick in her head. Yeah, yeah, and I, I guess that that's really about paying attention to the right things at the right time and going, all right, what's it time for right now? And as soon as she steps into the ring, it's like, hang on a second, I've got to leave all of that other stuff behind. I've got a job to do right now, and I have to focus on how do I do that job to the best of my ability. Um, And often that's a really simple recipe. You know, there's only really one or two really simple actions that you need to pay attention to. And if you do those things really well, then you're going to be successful. So you don't even really need to have that conversation in your head. Am I going to be successful or not? You actually need to focus on how you're going to be successful. And do you trust your plan? Do you trust that you have a good plan to, to take down your opponent in the ring? Like, do you trust that you can execute that plan? Okay, cool. Then that's what you do. Plus, I guess in UFC or boxing, if you don't switch on, then you get you get knocked out. Yeah. So I think it may be a little bit different to a well, I always (laughs) a team sport. But you find that with with rugby as well. There's some, you know, people who are just like so happy go lucky, but when they go on the field, they're like a completely completely different person. But I think that's the same as any. Sorry to like. I think it's the same as. You you just again look at me. Like I'm just I'm the psychologist here. I would say you even in your work, I believe that you just need to have the ability, or it's good to have the ability to just switch into these different personas and different mindsets. You know, like we are coaches on the floor, and sometimes I'm in the back room and I might be in a mood or a little bit grumpy. But when you go onto the floor, you have to become the person you need to be in that moment. It's just understanding, you know, who that person is. Would that yeah, be yeah, and and. Uh... There's a there's a few parts to that too. Who that person is, and that should be congruent with your values and what's important yeah. to you, right? Because if you're trying to be somebody else, mm. then that's not going to go too well. But because you you're essentially it, it's that old saying, square peg, round hole. You're trying to force yourself into being something that you can't actually be. Um, whereas if if you're actually doing it your way and your style then it's a lot easier to maintain and it requires a lot less mental energy to kind of sustain that. Um, But then over time with practice as well, that gets easier and easier um, because, you know, well, 
you know, whenever I step into this space, this is who I am and this is what I do. Um, so you don't even really have to think about it yeah. because you know that that's, that's what you do in that space. Um, I've, I've seen the, the other side of, of what you're describing a bit there as well, you know, um, players who can kind of switch on and be- become something else um, in their sport. Um, I've also seen where players, you know, you might get these massive rugby players who, everybody keeps saying to them be aggressive be more aggressive and you talk to them off the field and they're really just not an aggressive person Mm. and so they don't know how to generate that energy because they don't want to rip somebody's head off they just want to be really good at what they do so it's about tapping into that and going well what does aggressive actually look like for you um and, and for one guy I I didn't actually work with him as a client he was a, a friend of mine we actually you know, spoke about doing doing those behaviors. So so tackling in a certain way and 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 running in a certain way with with the ball. So he had specific behaviors that that looked like, as opposed to this persona that he had to generate because that just wasn't natural and wasn't sitting well for him. And by just really focusing on those behaviors, he was able to ramp up the intensity mm. um, and and play really well as a result of that. Um, because he was able to ex- execute with that extra intensity. And so he was aggressive without having to kind of yeah. generate this artificial kind of persona. So you could just change the, 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 that sort of just change in wording as well. Yeah, yeah, really. And and it's being explicit too because so many times coaches kind of yell from the sideline, you need to be more aggressive or you mm. need to be, um, I don't know, but but like really kind of or more composed or whatever. It's kind of these these words that are like, okay, yeah, cool, that that sounds great, but what does it actually mean? What are the yeah. behaviours that you're looking for? You need to be more intense. Like, cool, I'm feeling intense. I'm trying to be intense, yeah. but I don't, like, what, what does that actually mean? So if we shift more to behaviours rather than feelings, then we have yeah. a lot more control. Do you, do you find it easier to work with individuals than you do teams? Because everyone in a team would need to be treated differently, right, to get the best out of them, where their coach, like you spoke about before, could be have a certain mentality where everyone should be more aggressive, everyone should play this style. But to make each individual tick, you're going to have to treat everyone slightly different. Like if I got, I remember a kid, I think I was 16 at the time, and my coach shouted at me for the first time, been playing since I was five, like screamed. I started crying. I started crying. I started crying. I got that angry. I think I got sent off like not too long after that. So before I played rugby, I would listen to I would listen to opera because I'd have to be in a certain state. Yeah, you know I mean state of mind. Do, 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 do you get that a lot with working individuals and then teams? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So and it depends on the sport and it depends on the the number of individuals in the in the team as well. Um, but huge there's there's a huge amount of variety um, and the coaches that are most successful from what I've seen are definitely the ones who take the whole person into account and can sort of go, all right, this is what I need from you. This is how you receive messages, this is how you respond. This is you like a challenge, so I'm going to give you a challenge. Versus, you need a little bit of a, an arm around you to kind mm. of uh, get get you moving and and get you going. And um, especially nowadays, I'm working a lot more in in female sports, and so I think that's even more important because there's not sort of that high performance um, training age uh, mm. that a lot of the men's sports have because a lot of these sports are quite 
young. Um, and so it is really important to understand the whole person. And, you know, some of these girls have, who are playing at the professional level have been at a, a full day of work all day. Yeah. Um, so they're pretty exhausted by the time they get there. So just that little bit of understanding and and knowing what what's required for each individual is is really important um yeah and have you ever been involved whether it's now or in the in the past where you've sought out to go speak to an athlete rather than them come to you because like one of the and i've heard this said like millions of times whether it's by a coach or just in commentary watching a game like that player could be so good if they could just get out of their head um, have you ever seen that when when watching them train or in a game where like oh I really need to go speak yeah. to them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that definitely happens. I think, and and this is where my my favorite wor- way of working in a team is being really embedded or integrated into the team. So, again, similar to your other sports med staff, where um, you know I, I'm generally not not around full time with with my teams, but if you're part of the um the team meetings you're part of the the planning as well so you kind of know you get to know the players really well and you get to know how they fit within the team and how the team operates and how the coach operates and how the staff operate so you do have that freedom then to to go up to players and go hey what was happening there or um what was that situation or you might see something in a game and and be able to follow up with that as well um but starting to get an, an understanding of, of what their kind of normal level is or what their baseline is, what, what they look like when they're playing at their best and, and what sort of happens when they're playing at their worst as well. Um, and then you can have those conversations and go, hey, what was happening there? Um, but that's also where the relationship with the coach and the, the staff are really important too because they can flag that sometimes as well and go, hey, you know, I think think you need to talk to Rach about, about that situation because it, it's not a technical thing. It, it sounds like that's something in the mental performance space, which then is part of, you know, breaking some of that stigma as well and making it more accessible because, you know, if the other staff are, are treating us like, you know, part of the, the staff, yeah. um, then it becomes a lot more acceptable. What causes some of those perhaps like self-limiting beliefs that athletes have? Is it something that they've always sort of had within the game or can it just come from like one bad game and then just carry on from there? Yeah, so it, it's probably the the classic psychologist answer that it depends. Yeah. Um, <laughs> depends on a, on a whole host of different things. It could be about relationships. It could be, you know, the criticism of themselves. It could be a bad experience that they've had um, where – you know, someone's responded poorly if they've made a mistake or um, they've responded poorly if they make a mistake or um, it, it might be that, you know, they have some of those perfectionist tendencies and they're just really hard on themselves if they're not perfect um, and so they try and overcompensate because maybe they, they don't, they, they have a lot of what we call performance-based identity, which means you, you get your identity from your performance. So if you're not perfect in your execution, it's like, well, then I'm not a good enough person, yeah. which seems quite extreme, but that's that's where it can go, especially if, you know, you think about, you know, the kids at school, um, you've got the kids who are, 
who are good at rugby. So they're known as the athletic kids and, you know, the kids that are known as the academic kids and the kids that are known as the musical kids. And so that's that's what they're known for. And then years later when you run into them, you're like, oh, are you still doing music? Are you still playing rugby? Are you still whatever? Because people people expect that that's part of your identity and that kind of reinforces that. And so when you're not the the superstar talent anymore, then that yeah. that gets really tough. Um, or there's, you know, some kid coming through that's challenging your spot mm-hmm. and you start thinking about every mistake that you make. Oh, man, I'm not going to get picked next week or I'm not going to get picked in the national team. Then you start doubting yourself and, and things can go south very, very quickly. You see, you see it with a, a lot of professional athletes. I'm similar to the thought process of myself was every time I played up, like every time I got to a better level, I enjoyed rugby. I enjoyed rugby less and less, you know, and I'll read a lot of autobiographies of rugby players cause I'm a rugby fan. And they'll say, when was the most enjoyable time of playing? And they would say with, when I was a kid or when I was with my friends, do you know what I mean? Do you, do, you, do you see that a lot? Yeah. Sometimes it goes the opposite way. Yeah. So people actually enjoy the challenge of, of playing up, but also there's, there's fewer expectations cause it's like, well, I'm I'm supposed to be the worst at this level, whereas if I go back, then I'm supposed to be the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sometimes it, it can work that way as well, but definitely there's that element of, you know, if there's no pressure, you can just go out there and have fun. Yeah. Um, people tend to, to play a lot better when they do that. And then when you're playing better and you don't have to work so hard to play better, that generally is more enjoyable. Do you ever get someone where you just want to like, I know you physically can't in your job, but just want to like slap them like around the face because they're like just phenomenal athletes, but they've just got a terrible mindset. And then I guess on the other side of things, you would see some people that just had like a rock solid bullet mindset, but they're just not, they're just not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever slapped an athlete in the face? I've never slapped an athlete. There's time. Law of averages. Law of averages is time, people. Uh, (laughs) Um, Yeah, it it does get frustrating sometimes. Mm. Where you're like, oh man, if you just done this one thing, or um, because sometimes those ones as well are the ones that are not necessarily as willing to (laughs) to talk, um, or don't necessarily have the insight to put things in place. And you're sitting there going, "Hey, I have the answer for you. I just want to help you. I have no other agenda. Yeah, just trying to help. Let me help you." So that that does get a bit frustrating sometimes. (laughs) Um, Or it's um. It's funny, growing up, I was known as the one who was always yelling at the the TV or, or in the crowd if I was watching a sporting event, but now I have to be nice and composed <laughs> if, if I'm around my team on game day, so that doesn't come very naturally. Um, but sometimes if I'm watching from home, that, that yeah. might come out. <laughs> a different persona comes out. I know as yeah. um, a sports psychologist, you have many, many tools in your tool belt, but probably one of the most famous ones and that I first came into like sort of realization that this is something that sports psychologists do is visualization, whether that's around like, I think I first heard it from like, like goal kickers. They focus on nothing else, but they close their mind or before a fight playing it, how you want it to go. Like why, why is visualization such a powerful tool? Yeah, there's a, a few different theories around how it works and, and what it does, but essentially it, and it seems to create a bit of a blueprint 
um, for what the brain, what the bodies are out, about to do. Um, so it's almost like that idea that when you're watching a scary movie, even though logically you know that it's not going to happen, yeah, yeah. there's almost this feeling that somebody's going to jump out of the cupboard or whatever or knock on the door or um, something bad's going to happen, even though logically you know that's not going to happen. And and it's kind of like that that mechanism in the brain where it goes, well, I feel like I've done it before. I haven't physically done it before, but I feel like I have done it before. Um, and yeah, so that's what makes it easier to do. So it's the sort of like the habituation of stress. You're just trying to get yourself a little bit more familiar with potential scenarios and how you'd overcome them. I suppose that leads to becoming more resilient with the tasks you're trying to achieve, right? Yeah, and it's like what we were talking about before. It's that that behavioural focus. It's like, well, actually, hang on a second. My body knows what to do. My brain knows what to do. The scenario hasn't changed compared to what I'm doing at training or in those games where I am having fun and, and more relaxed because there's less pressure. My job's actually the same. You know, the intensity might have changed. There might be more people watching, but my job's actually the same. And that's essentially what what visualisation does. It takes some of that threat out so you can get used to it. Um, and I use the same thing. I probably use visualisation um, just as much with injury rehab and, and, you know, what you were talking about before with that uncertainty around, well, can I actually trust that my knee can hold my weight or my knee can change direction and move really quickly and I can push off it and it's not going to get injured again. Um, you know, I've had people with back injuries who um, physio send to me because they're not doing movements that they logically yeah. should be able to, but because there's so much fear around it. So the great thing is one of the, the best ways to take fear out of it is get them to visualise doing the same movement. Um, and then they can visualise that. And it's amazing how often when they visualise it they visualize it with pain so it's yeah practical. i was gonna say that's that's what happened to me i never spoke to a sports psychologist but when i think about trying to like run and step and get through i think about that in my head but then i'd get injured in my head and i have to be like no 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 not gonna happen yeah brain so powerful hey yeah. it's incredible how it creates those pictures so you've got to rewind and record over for those who yeah. remember the days where you could do that yeah. <laughs> um, but essentially create a, a new story where you go hang on a second no what would that look like if i actually do that successfully um, and practice that until you build that trust up yeah so when you're talking practice would you just get someone to sit and literally just close your eyes and just think yeah, so again, it, it depends. I feel like I'm saying that a lot. No, today, that's all good. No, we're with you. <laughs> it, it depends on the individual and, and timing and, and that side of things as well, and what specifically you're using it for. But essentially, a, a really good way to, to practice it if you're not very good at it is to actually do a skill. Obviously, not if you're injured, but is to actually do a skill and then visualize it straight afterwards because you want to make it as real as possible. So that can be a really good way to practice visualizing and using it that way. Um, or, you know, you, you can do it sort of sitting down um, and close your eyes um, or you can do it in the moment. But just the the key is to try and create that, that image as, as close to what you're trying to do as possible. You know, basketball free throws is there's probably one of the most famous studies around visualization was 
basketball free throws and increase the accuracy. But that was literally a process of um, on the basketball court prior to taking free throws, imagining doing that. Um, So the benefit of context is it's a lot easier to create the picture because you're in the space and you've got a lot of the cues already um, to make that picture pretty real. Anything? No, that's great. That's a great. That's a good answer. I think I was just think about. Yeah, it's good that you said that about just in the moment, maybe beforehand. Because um, again, same with meditation. I'm not very good at just being with my thoughts alone. My brain just goes about a million different places. So to just sit and think, I'll be like, "All right, what's what's going on?" And then I'll be I'll be elsewhere. But just in the moment, that is a yeah, really interesting. Just before, because I guess your brain can pr- think pretty pretty fast. It can come up yeah. with a whole scenario pretty quickly. Yeah, that's right. And it's about finding what works for you because there are some people who um, I, I uh, one of my pet hates is when people say, oh, visualise being successful the, right before you go to bed, um, the night before mm-hmm. you match or your big event or whatever. That's one of the worst things you can do, especially yeah. if, if you want to have a good night at sleep. We were always told this as kids, always. It's awful. Always. I hate it. Yeah, right. That's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, what are you going to do as soon as you've visualised, whether it's good or bad, whether whether you can, like like your example before, you actually can't create that image, so you actually create a negative image. What if I play bad and then all of a sudden you start thinking about that? Good luck sleeping. But even if you get hyped up and excited and you're super pumped, good luck sleeping, right? Yeah. You've, you've played the game in your head or, or whatever it is a million times before even you get you get there the next morning and then you wonder why you're mentally drained right before the game. Yeah, that's yeah. so true. It's very well, true. There you go. Did that far too many times. Yeah, <laughs> all the time, yeah. All the time we're told about it constantly. Do you have any tricks or strategies for that? Like, Because I tend to be one who th- overthinks in bed and then it, it, it does go either of those ways. What would you say to people who are lying in bed? Circling yeah. their thoughts. Go sleep. <laughs> go sleep. <laughs> yeah, good advice. Um, well, it, it's all about having having good routines and and routines. Like I'm not a super structured person, um, so I hate having like okay at you know nine oh one you will do this and at nine fifteen you'll do this. Like need to relax a little bit, but but having a, a clear routine at night where you give yourself actually time to debrief the day. Because when you're overthinking at night, it generally means that's your brain trying to steal time to actually process everything that's happened during mm-hmm. the day. But often we make ourselves so busy, especially if we're overthinkers, during the day that you don't stop because like, well, if I stop, I'll start thinking. So then when you get to bed, it's like, well, Huh, your brain's going, well, finally, you've relaxed and stopped long enough to actually think this stuff through, everything that's happened during the day, everything that has to happen tomorrow. So giving yourself actual time to do that. Like I like to think about different parts of the day as, as different doors in a house. So um, especially like today I've got I've got this meeting and then I'm I'm in with one of my teams later this afternoon and I've got to do some work in between so I need to be able to open and shut the door in my mind essentially every time I go into a new space so I'm not taking what I did in in one setting into the next one so you need that at, at the start and the end of the day as well so 
um, usually I, I use my way home um, to to kind of debrief what's happened. Um, even before I get in the car, I might jot down, or when I'm sitting in the car before I start the car, I might jot down a couple of thoughts that I need to remember for that particular team. Or I might, depending on how far it is, I might even do that when I get home. And the first thing I do is kind of jot down a couple of notes. If there's messages I need to send as a summary of work we've done or whatever, I'll do that as soon as I get home jot down any thoughts I need to, and then switch off from that. So you've actually got to give yourself that time to debrief and give yourself time to switch off that's effective and that's not just avoiding the situation. So not just, you know, mindless TV or like trying not to think about things or scrolling social media, um, but actually something that's relaxing. You've just attacked her. She's crying. She's, 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 so she's, 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 she's crying behind the, the screen. Right I'm glad you can't see my face. She's crying behind. <laughs> Sorry, Katie. No, that's really helpful, though. That's um, I yeah, I think me and a few other members are probably guilty of that, right? It's that just oh, you're definitely on the not go alone. all the time. And so when you're in bed, that's your time that your brain's like, oh, I got to catch up and debrief on everything that I've thought of today. And yeah. Well, we spoke to just, you've touched on it a couple of times, just about reflection and then maybe just journaling or just writing some stuff down. Just the importance of that. It's something we try and do with our clients a lot on a Sunday. They'll have to reflect on their week and some of them just hate it, just hate it. I'm just like, you're just missing the purpose about why we're, why we're trying to do it. We've told Kate a lot of time to journal, but she's a journalist for the ABC. So she's like, I don't need to journal. I will journal all day. I was like, (laughs) it's sort of, uh, it's sort of different. Like how important is journaling and having genuine reflection on everything that you do yeah super important like again if if you think about (laughs) (laughs) just a dagger to her heart she's just singing hang on i'm not finished yet yeah 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 yeah. but but if you if you think about a, a sport right or if you think about training you you generally have a testing point or um and then you test again later to to see if what you're doing actually works and then hopefully you reflect on the program and go is this program actually taking me where I want to go or not so that reflection point helps you refine what you're doing and then your next program is even better because it's really tailored to what's working and what's not working. Um, same with game review, right? You know, there's there's not a, a team or a, an individual athlete that I can think of that doesn't have that reflection process or certainly not at the top level. Uh, and that might look different for different teams. Like, well, what worked? What didn't? How do we improve on that for next time, for the next opposition or the the next situation that we come up against? Um, Because that's where you learn and grow, right? I think you you nailed something important there, that idea of purpose. And I think that's where we go wrong with a lot of these habits is we don't have that purpose and we end up doing it because someone told us to do it. It's like, well, you must journal. It's like, oh, great. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm certainly one for digging in my heels if that happens. But if I can make that meaningful for me and go, well, hang on a second. So I need to reflect on my week. What does that actually look like for me? And what would, that, what would be useful about that for me? And that's not necessarily a dear diary entry because that might, you know, the idea yeah. of having to write pages might just, you know, drive me nuts, especially on a Sunday afternoon. But if I've got a really simple process that I'm following that is really purposeful because then that means that heading into the next week I've actually got something meaningful to work on, 
then yeah. that's going to be a lot better, whether that's bullet points or whatever. Because, again, you know, similar to the, what we talked about with meditation um, way back at the start, um, <laughs> needs to be suitable for the individual, whether yeah. that's bullet points, whether that's drawing even, yeah. you know, whatever that looks like, whether it's a rating scale of numbers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Think, yeah. I th- I, it's really good to, to hear you speak on it like this. Something, yeah, we give to our clients, I'll ask them three questions, maybe like three bullet points, what went right last week, what went wrong last week, and then what are you going to do to amend that? And I think the thought process behind it, what I'm thinking, and you can tell me right or wrong, is the fact that they start to have autonomy and start to coach themselves in in what they're doing. And then it, when we talk, we have something to, to go off and then we can start to expand on. But a lot of people just think you're just looking at the negatives or the positives, just a little bit deeper than this. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's really important because you're right. Then they start coaching themselves and they start to take more responsibility. And, and an even, even better question than what went wrong last week, yep. what could be better than, than what you did last week? Because it might be that nothing went wrong. Yep. Everything was, yeah. was just kind of okay. Um, but there's actually something that could be better. Well, you know, I, I, Took, took my stuff to, to work and then trained on my way home from work one day a week. All right, awesome. Maybe try and do yeah. that two, two times a yeah. week. That's oh. a, yeah, um, well, that's a good point. I'm going to change my um, weekly write-up after this. <laughs> straight away. But no, you're all right. I've straight away, no, that, that does make a lot more sense. It's a, better, much, a much better question. Yeah, and if you make it really easy and part of your routine as well, it doesn't have to take a long time because mm. um, they're, they're usually the biggest barrier is it takes takes too much energy and it takes too much time. Whereas if there's really simple questions that are easy to answer, there's a purpose behind doing it and there's a routine like you do at the same time each week or the end of each day, then it's really easy to do. Just touching on, or just we'll finish up soon, just touching on things that are just difficult to do, like we spoke about meditation, like we did journaling. Sometimes it's got to be important to just do the hard thing, right? That's how resilience is built. You chase adversity, you don't like it, you sort of can get through it to some extent. Is that something that you can see with adversity? Like you should do some of the things that you're not too comfortable with, you think that will build resilience, or you think it can go the other way? Uh, yes and no. So... Um it depends on what you want, right? One of my absolute favourite quotes in the whole world is vision gives pain a purpose. So uh, you probably, like I've had people say to me before, oh, you should run a, a 10K. Now, I hate running. Like give me pretty much anything else to do um, than, than run, any, any other form of exercise to do than run. So to actually have to run 10Ks because somebody else wants me to do it. I'm not going to push through and do it, even if they go, well, that's a great way to to build up your resilience, blah, blah, blah. All I'm hearing is blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I couldn't think of anything worse to do <laughs> my whole life. But if, if you ask me to, like, I don't know, chase a ball aimlessly up and down a court, like um, in basketball or something like that, I'll do that all day. Happy days. Like there's plenty of other ways to motivate me to get the same result. Um, And I have a vision for it. I have a purpose for it. I enjoy it more. So I'm going to be more likely to do it. Now, ironically, I've just started running off my own bat because I've started setting myself the challenge. Um, because all of a sudden it's something that I want to do uh, and I've got a vision for it and a purpose for it as opposed to somebody else telling me to do it. So, yes, there's a there's a sense of pushing yourself through discomfort 
but it, it needs to have a purpose, not just for the sake of being uncomfortable, because there are plenty of times in life where we have to be uncomfortable. Um, so sometimes our brain is just like, you know what, I've had enough. What are you putting me this through this for? And I think, you know, sort of some of the things that we've talked about today, our brain does stuff for a reason. And I think for a long time we've kind of believed that our brain is doing something wrong and we need to fix it. But we actually need to flip that around. And, and it's the same with feelings. We need to flip that around and go, hang on, what's my brain trying to tell me right now? What are my feelings actually trying to tell me right now? Like if I'm overthinking before bed, my brain's telling me that I have stuff I need to process, but I haven't had space to process it through the day. So make space to process it, for example. Or my brain's telling me I don't want to do something and I'm procrastinating. So we we whack ourselves for that and we go, well, that's not good enough and I shouldn't be doing that. Why am I doing that? And then we feel even worse about ourselves as opposed to going, well, what's the issue? Well, it's like, well, I worked till 10 o'clock the night before and I didn't get to bed till midnight and I'm expecting myself to get up at 4.30 in the morning to be at the gym at 5 or 5.30. That's probably your body just going, hey, I'm tired, I need some sleep, right? Yeah. So you need to find a better way to do it. So, so in that sense, I think, uh, yes, push through adversity if it's taking you somewhere where you want to go, but you're actually allowed to make it easy for yourself to do that. Yep, right. Yep. So sometimes I'll do ridiculous things like go to bed in my gym pants because then that's one less thing I have to do when I get up to yeah, work yeah, out yeah. in the morning. Right. It sounds ridiculous, no, but no, it no. Just makes it that little bit easier. Right. And and the same with building a routine and, and journaling, for example, at a, having having those questions there just makes that that little bit easier than sitting down and going with a blank page and going, cool, now I need to reflect on my week. Where do I even start? And then an hour later you're frustrated because there's nothing on the page and then you don't want to do it again the next week or the week after that. Yeah. Uh, I think that's that's awesome. You touched on so many so many amazing points. I'm super, super happy we got, we got you on. Um, we just have one final question for you. That we didn't send you, so dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I'm just going to be hit with it. <laughs> what do you believe it means to be healthy? Hmm. Well, yeah, there's a lot of elements to that. I think um, probably the word that I would go with is is thriving, right? So if you, you look at the, the well-being continuum, there's almost this sense in, in the, there's almost like this, this normal range um, where you go, yeah, things are okay and, and I'm doing more than surviving and, and I'm, I'm well and I'm okay, but I think being healthy is in being in that thriving space. So your brain doesn't have to go into that fight or flight mode because it feels safe and you can actually make decisions in line with your purpose. You can follow your values. You can do things that are important to you. And that that's a holistic, you know, I can't, can't help it as a, as a psychologist. It's, it's that holistic side of things. Yeah. Mind, body, soul, and spirit. Like it's, it's the whole person. doesn't matter if you've got, um, you know, a million dollar body, if your brain is, is fried yeah. and you're not doing anything that's important to you, 100%. Like it, it doesn't really matter. It, it's so superficial, but same the other way around as well. Like you just, if you, if your body's not in the best space, then that's actually going to get in the way you're going to be more tired you're not going to be able to do the things that you really enjoy and maybe not connect with people as much as you would because you just have, don't have the energy to engage 
Um, so I think it's that that place of thriving where you're really living by your values. You, you're doing those things that are important to you. You are embracing those uncomfortable situations, but for that purpose and, and able to push through and challenge yourself and maybe do things that you never thought were possible. Phenomenal so, answer. Yeah. Phenomenal answer. Yeah, brilliant. Where can people find you? You on social media or obviously you've got a private private practice? Yeah, so um, the name of my private practice is Lift High Performance Consultants um, and we're under uh, at Lift High Performance on Instagram. Um, we've also got a, a Facebook page and you can find me, I think it's Rachel Jones Lift HPC on Instagram as well. Um, but if you find the Lift High Performance one, you'll you'll find me in there too. There we go. Love it. I feel like I could do another five episodes just on myself. Yeah. <laughs> it's, really, it's really interesting. But I, I have to pay for that. That's uh, cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for coming on. It was we've been trying to get you know a sports psychologist on for ages. So thank you very much for for jumping on. Uh, it was absolutely phenomenal to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. No worries. Thanks, Take care.